Good morning. Thanksgiving weekend started off well. My family and I were in Michigan yesterday. You don't have to do everybody's job, just do your own, right? I mean, I found myself saying that constantly yesterday. Just do the one job that you have, just do it well. Do it the best you can. Love all this red scarlet up here. Just in a great mood, fantastic mood, or at least I've been told I need to be in a good mood today. We have seen over the past few weeks what the church actually is and been defined, or, or, or it has been defined as we answer, ask and answer all of these questions. What is the church? Who is the church? Where is the church? When? How? All of these things we ask all the time. And, and by the way, <clears throat> this type of lesson, this type of message needs to happen. It needs to happen every so often because there is a, a large group of people um, that don't completely understand what the church is, why the church exists, many have a sort of vague idea. They have a picture that they've constructed in their own minds. Uh, But we need to be reminded of what the church is, even if it is sometimes a little bit dry. Um, My wife critiques my messages and my series, and uh, she said, you know, I really liked that uh, crazy series that you did. And I said, well, great. I said, thank you. I appreciate that. I said, what about the current series? She said, I really like that crazy series that you did. That's all I know. That's all I know. But it's important to remember these things and to learn these things. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you once again that we have the opportunity, gift to learn and to grow. Uh, Open our eyes to understand and to live out our purpose in the church. Our purpose in life, Father. We ask that you help us today to have a a firmer grasp on what we do, why we do it, as we live out this purpose. In Jesus' name, amen. I will be uh, all over, as we've been throughout this entire series, I'll be all over and throughout Scripture, but you're welcome to turn to Ephesians 4. And last week we looked at the how, how we live out the, uh, the definition of the church. But today I want to look at some of the specifics and remind us of these things. Uh, short history lesson. This is just, this is very, very, very brief. Uh, you know, kind of talks about the church of Christ and how and why it is structured the way it is. Uh, the church <clears throat> is structured a certain way. In this particular part of the body here in Russiavania is deliberately structured after the manner and order we see in the New Testament. Uh, again, a brief, <clears throat> very quick history back in 1517, a German monk by the name of Martin Luther protested how 
the Roman Catholic Church was carrying out the responsibilities of the church. Uh, this is where you get the term Protestant. He was protesting that. And uh, not just how, but why they were carrying out the responsibilities of the church. And he attempted to reform the church. That's where you get the Reformation a long time ago. From that came a number of different parts of the body. Uh, it, it, we call these denominations. You know, just all, just all kinds of different denominations that we have all over the world and certainly throughout our nation. Fast forward about 275 years later, in about 1792, it's kind of hard to pinpoint the actual date of the Restoration Movement because it was started not by one person but by many different churches and their thoughts and their actions around the United States. They basically said to themselves, look, we've come a long way since the Reformation in the 1500s, but we're not quite there yet. There's a few things that we need to change and a few things that we need to uh, uh, tweak to get back to the original form, the original structure and polity of the church that we see in the New Testament. And so they weren't trying to change the church or reform the church. They were trying to restore the church the way it was in the New Testament. And from that restoration movement, uh, which lasted a long time, came the Church of Christ, came the Disciples of Christ, and Christian churches. And, of course, we've already talked about the fact that this particular part of the body was established about 50 years after uh, that whole thing began. And from this restoration, this, we, we have this structure as a part of this body in Rushvania. We're going to go through that structure today. Again, going back to Scripture, how it was structured then, and to repeat that, how it is structured now. And by the way, not everybody agrees with this. Not everybody agrees with the way uh, the church is structured here in Russellvania. And to them, I would say three things. I, I just remember it this, this way, sanctify, learn, and go. Uh, first of all, if not everybody agrees with this, I would say, hey, look, we are in the process of sanctification. We're in the process. We're, we're surrounded by people who have given their lives and are uh, in the process of sanctification, which means they're incomplete at this point. Uh, there's a lot of, lot of people that say, no, 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 I want to structure the church a little bit different than that, or I think this is the way Scripture tells us to structure the church, and so on and so forth. Again, these disagreements are because of incomplete sanctification. And so I would remind people of that. There is a time, there is a day when we are going to completely know, just, or we, just as we are fully known, our eyes and our minds are going to be open to some of the things that we are missing uh, and, and fill in some of those gaps. The other thing I would say, second thing uh, for those who disagree, is learn. Learn. All right? Ask questions. Sit down. Talk about these things. Why is it structured the way it is? Give me the whole history of the Restoration Movement. Study the church, right? Ecclesiology, the study of the church. Uh, you know, you and I could sit down and we can, we can go through the whole thing, the whole church history from the very beginning to the end. I went through all of church history when I was being trained for this. It took a very, very long time, uh, but it opened your eyes and it opened your mind. And then the third thing is if, if those two things fail, I would say Go. There's a lot of bodies and there's a lot of churches and they love Jesus and they teach Jesus Christ. And we live in a day and an age where communication and transportation is very, very easy. You know, you, there's no sense in being a part of a body where you walk in and you hate everything that they do and you can't stand the way they do this and stand the way they do that. Well, there's other places that you can worship, people that I love, the teachers that I rely upon that teach their bodies and so forth. 
And so I would go through that process if there are things that we disagree with in the structure of the church here in Russellvania and certainly the structure of the church we see in the New Testament. I want to start with Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 10. We find this. He who descended <clears throat> is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up. We know from here, as we're going to look at the structure and why of the church, we know here that Jesus is the head of the body. We've talked about this throughout this entire series. Remember, Jesus is the boss. All right, He is laying out His direction, His decrees in His Word, usually through the epistles. John was just talking about uh, 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 Paul and how he wrote so much of the New Testament. Usually it's through his letters and, and, and the epistles of the New Testament that we learn about the structure of the church. Sometimes it's through Christ's direct revelation. We see this in the revelation of Christ as he writes letters to different churches, and we can learn from that. And then Jesus appoints. Through the Holy Spirit, he appoints, he anoints different parts of the church, different parts of the body to fill different roles in the body. And we get to be, we have the privilege, we have the opportunity to take on certain roles in the body. We know from Acts chapter 2, and this won't be on your screen, as we see this church coming together, this early church coming together, they were teaching, they had times of fellowship, breaking of bread and prayer, this intercession and worship. And so how do we begin to break down this structure? And again, while it may be dry, it is certainly important for us to see and understand. After all, this is what we we immerse our lives in. What we say is so important and defines our life and who we are. So as we go through Ephesians 4, 10 through 12, we have in our church, we have a group of elders. Elders. What do elders do? <clears throat> elders teach. Elders are appointed by Christ through the Spirit to protect the body. There's a couple elders in the room here, if you just stand, if the elders could stand in the room here for just a minute. These elders, and we have others as well that uh, are in our second service, um, or maybe they're skipping today. I don't know what the deal is, but we got three of them right here. You guys, this is John, this is Jim, and Cliff. You guys can sit down. They're appointed by Christ through the Spirit, and what is their main job? Yes, they serve, and yes, they teach. All those things are important. But their main job is to protect the integrity of the word, protect the integrity of the word, to make sure that what is taught is true and accurate to the word of God. They need to be in the word. They need to be studying the word. I've told you before that I often get corrected and taught uh, by different elders in the church. They are spiritual shepherds, uh, making sure that what we read is applied correctly or to the best of our ability. The eldership in the church works as one unit <clears throat> to make sure what is taught and practiced is accurate, and we see it develop in Scripture as an extension of the apostolic role. The apostles started this, and then they spilled over into the eldership. This role, by the way, is not just for anyone in the church. First Timothy chapter 3, here is a trustworthy saying. 
Whoever aspires to be an overseer, that's what the elders of the church are called here. Whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. Now the overseer is above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Now the overarching role here, the overarching description is above reproach. Elder needs to be above reproach. We're going to see similarities as we look at deacons and other, other roles in the church. Above reproach. In other words, you look at the person, you say, you know what? He's a pretty good guy. He's got his faults, but he's a pretty good guy. He knows Scripture. He reads Scripture. He teaches Scripture. Not given to drunkenness, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his family well and see that his children obey him. He must do so in a manner worthy of full respect. After all, if anyone doesn't know how to manage his family, how can he take care of God's church? He must not be a recent convert. He, may, he must be walking with Christ for a while. And why? Because he may become conceited and fall under the same judgment as the devil. He must also have a good reputation with outsiders so that he will not fall into disgrace and into the devil's trap. Very serious role. Very serious criteria here. At no point are we looking at perfection in any of these things we're going to talk about, but it is the pursuit of perfection. And by the way, if you're pursuing perfection, if you're pursuing sanctification, you're going to have a lot of people that don't like you. You're going to have a lot of people that hate you. We see this as we go through the church. But that shouldn't stop us from the pursuit of being sanctified. We also have in the church teachers, and this is an extremely serious calling that needs to be taken extremely seriously. From kids to adults, you're entrusted with conveying the word truthfully to, again, whether you're teaching a room of adults, but really more to the point, if you're teaching a room full of kids, you need to make sure it is done accurately and with the reverence it demands. Teachers wield an enormous amount of influence over the lives of others, particularly over the lives of kids, the kids we have in this room. A lot of adults can disseminate a little bit easier. Sometimes the kids cannot, and so it's a very serious, serious charge. The word puts the role of the teacher in its place in James chapter 3. Not many of you should become teachers or presume to teach, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. That's not a, a, uh, a line. It's not a teaching uh, to try to prevent people from teaching. I think John MacArthur puts it best when he says, this is referring to someone in an official teaching capacity. The word judgment usually expresses a negative capacity in the New Testament, and here refers to a future judgment. Number one, for the unbelieving or false teacher in the second coming of Christ, that's a very, very dangerous place. That's not someplace you want to be. Number two, for the believer, when they are rewarded by Jesus Christ for teaching. This is not meant to discourage true teachers, but to warn the prospective teacher of the role's seriousness. This is not something we take lightly. It's not something you can or should take lightly. Because this judgment comes very heavily many times, certainly on those who are given the charge of teaching people to follow Jesus. And that judgment comes eternally, but it comes daily from those around you and those that you teach and those that see you and those you influence. That judgment comes every day. And so this is a role to be taken very, very seriously, an important role as teachers in the church. We also have... excuse me, in our church, the deacons, the deacons of the church. Deacons are servants of the church, and yet another role. All of these roles 
all of these different jobs, all of these different callings need to be, are commanded to be taken seriously. And one of the reasons that this one is taken so seriously is the servant is the highest honor that Jesus gives a person. Very highest honor that Jesus gives one of his creations is that of the servant. The deacons were chosen in Acts by the church in which they served. Acts chapter 6, at those days when the number of disciples were increasing, the Hellenistic Jews, that is the Greek Jews among them, complained that the Hebraic Jews, before, uh, because their widows would not or were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. That was just something that they were doing, helping out this early church. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, look, we're not, being, we're not teaching here. Okay, we're, we're running around doing all this other stuff and nobody's teaching. It wouldn't be right for us to neglect the ministry of the Word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. And by the way, this wisdom in this context and throughout the Old Testament are those who are able to work. That's what this means. That's what the wisdom means in this context. Those who are able and have the ability to do work. We will turn the responsibility over to them and we'll give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the Word. Uh, the proposal pleased the whole group, and they chose a bunch of people here. Verse 6, you can read through those in verse 5. They presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. This is different than eldership. In Scripture, we see elders appointed, and we see deacons chosen by the body in which they serve. Well, serve in what way? Why is this so important? This is where we get the quintessential picture of deaconship. Once again, this is not for everybody. This isn't something that you just wake up one day and say, well, I'm just going to do this for the heck of it. No, no, no. This is a very, very serious charge. 1 Timothy 3, starting in verse 8, in the same way, just got done talking about the elders of the church, and then Paul says, in the very same way, in the same way, deacons are to be worthy of respect sincere, not indulging in much wine, not pursuing dishonest gain. They must keep hold of the deep truths of faith with a clear conscience. They must first be tested, and then if there's nothing against them, let them serve as deacons. In the same way, women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. A deacon must be faithful to his wife and must manage his children and household well. Sounds an awful lot like eldership, doesn't it? Those who have served well gain an excellent standing and great assurance in their faith in Christ Jesus. Please note through all of this, we see that elders and deacons must be one and the same with regards to character. The only difference really is teaching. The elders are obligated to teach in some way and in some role, um, and deacons are not. Now, can they teach? We have deacons teaching all the time. Sure, sure deacons can teach, but they just need to know, just like every teacher does, what they're taking on. But even this isn't the full and total picture of deaconship. This wasn't why it was ultimately instituted. Unfortunately, churches get into the bad habit and tradition of relegating deaconship to too small a role. Their character is to be above reproach. And then the deacon is meant to serve as the picture of what the minister in Christ looks like. The picture of what the minister in Christ looks like. And you better pay attention to that because we're going to talk about ministers here in just a minute. And that leads us to this heavy, heavy, 
That's the best way I can say it. Responsibility. That the deaconship, the elders, the teachers have as they interact throughout the body and throughout the church. To be that picture. To be the example. To see what they do. See how they speak. See how they carry their lives. Live their lives. Walk through their lives. We have deacons in here. I want to make sure you know who the deacons are. If you're a deacon in the room, could you please stand up? Watch them. Know their names. Talk to them. They are meant to be the picture of ministry. Thanks, guys. That leaves us with ministers. Who are the ministers of the church? In its truest definition, the ministers of the church is all the rest of us. All the rest of us. Once again, it's a definition that has been kind of messed up throughout the years. Ministers, somebody who stands up here in a blue suit and red tie and preaches, right? That's, that's what we think. That's not the minister of the church. The ministers of the church are those involved in ministry, those involved in service, including elders, deacons, and teachers. After all, church, are we not royal priests? A minister is not just a preacher. It's someone who is involved in service. Let's go back to our original verse in Ephesians chapter 4. So Christ gave himself the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors, and teachers to equip his people for what? Works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. This word service here is the Greek word for ministry. Diakonia sounds an awful lot like deacon, doesn't it? To serve, to minister. This ministry is not necessarily the latest program that the local church has. This ministry is accomplished in many ways. It's accomplished in everyday life, all day long if you choose. Here's what I mean. I want to ask you to follow this train of thought, all right? Can I sum up the ministry of all believers in one word? Regardless of the specific roles that you take on, I can. And I hope that this this just gets sort of branded on your heart and in your life. The word is charity. The word is charity. Wait, what? Charity? Charity, you mean, wait a minute, you mean giving people stuff? Is (laughs) Is that the totality of the ministerial experience? Just to give people stuff, almsgiving as it were? No. No, it's not what I'm talking about. I'm going to make it a lot harder than to simply give people stuff if you want to be the church and you want to live out your role to do your job. It's to give people one thing. The job of ministers in this church is to give people one thing. And this is what you do if you decide to take on the ministry of the believer. By the way, there are moments when you do this one thing, there are moments of extreme joy doing this. And to be honest, we can be tempted with moments of extreme darkness if we do this. There are moments that no one sees if you do this that will bring you to tears. And there are also moments that no one sees that will bring you to incredible celebration. You're going to do this one thing as ministers for Jesus Christ. You can be loved for it 
and you can be hated for it. You can be remembered and you can just as easily be forgotten. And by the way, some of those closest to you will not understand. It can be so hard to explain this something inside of you that says, I have to do this. I have to do this. If taken seriously, it is a challenge unlike any challenge you will ever face. Charity. See, charity is once again this term that's been cheapened a little. Oh, giving people stuff is important. The giving of treasure helps people, ministers to people, keeps the doors open, keeps the heat on in here. We don't have some parent organization that funnels any type of money in here. No, what we have is what we drop on the plate or what we go online with. That's it. That's, that's it. It's important to give charity. It's important to do those things. But charity means much more than that. Charity in its truest definition means this, love in the Christian sense. Love in the Christian sense. You see, we relegate it to giving people stuff because that's just a part of charity. Just like rhyming is a part of poetry, and so we think all poetry must rhyme. Well, that's not true. It's just a large part of it, it seems. But love in the Christian sense is what charity means. Charity means forgiveness. It means service. It means encouragement. It means giving mercy. It means giving. It means teaching, leading. Charity means patience. Charity means sacrifice. It means evangelism. It means kindness. Charity means self-control. Charity means discipleship. Charity means not just giving of yourself, but giving yourself. That's what charity means. Charity means not running in the garden when he had the chance. That's that's what charity means. Charity means not calling on a whole legion of angels. Charity means being mocked before the Sanhedrin and the Roman soldiers. Charity is hoisting your own cross on your back and making the long walk through the streets. That's what charity means. Charity is being stripped naked and laid on the cross while people who hate you drive spikes through your hands and your feet. That's charity. Charity is interceding for those very people, asking God to forgive them for the very thing they are in the process of doing. That's charity. Charity is giving your spirit into the hands of the Father in the hopes that you may save some. What is charity in its truest definition? Love in the Christian sense. And if you are a minister in this church, that's everybody in this church who has accepted Jesus Christ, that is your job. That's your job. And if you were watching the game like me, there's many times you want to say to yourself, guys, just do your job. If you want to have success. John 15, 12 to 13, my command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Pay attention now. What does charity mean to its fullest extent? Greater love has no man than this to lay down one's life for one's friends. You see, and this is why charity... This is why being ministers for Christ, with all the other things that we have, the elders and the teachers and the deacons and so all this stuff in church, 
That's why this challenge is unlike any other. The reason it's unlike any other is because we are not talking about the physical life being laid down. That's not the point Jesus is trying to make. This is talked about again by the same apostle in 1 John 3. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. Now he talks about what he actually means there. Verse 17, if anyone has material possessions, sees a brother or sister in need, but has no pity on them, how can the love of God be in that person? What Jesus is saying is you don't lay down your life once if you're going to be a minister in Christ. You lay it down every single day. Every day. You lay down your life to lift up another. That's what it means to be a minister for Jesus Christ. That's what true charity actually is. It is the grandest challenge you will ever face. Because just about everybody I've ever met can do it once. Now do it twice. Now tomorrow. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. The moment after that, the moment after that. To lay down the life that you have been given every day for the person next to you. The friend, the family member, even the stranger. You talk about being tempted with moments of sadness. Don't take this on if you don't want to. Don't take this on if you're not going to take it seriously. To live out charity as a minister in Christ is to give up your life. To lay it down every day, just as Jesus did. To live out being a minister in Christ is a lifestyle. It's not a moment. It's how you are the church. And there's day after day, moment after moment, time after time, when looking at it from a distance, you can say to the church, just do your job. You don't have to do everybody else's job. Just do your job. To the best of your ability. Summed up in Romans chapter 12, we'll close with this. Paul writes this, love must be sincere, hate what is evil, cling to what is good, be devoted to one another in love, listen closely now, honor one another above yourselves, never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor serving the Lord. Be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. Share with the Lord's people who are in need. Practice hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Mourn with those who mourn. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be proud, but be willing to associate with people of low position. Do not be conceited. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. 
For it's written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Finally, verse 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's your job, church. There's plenty of evil out there, isn't there? Is there a lot of evil out there? Be one of the good guys. That's what you are. You overcome pride with humility. You overcome tyranny with service. You overcome evil with good. That's why the church is here. That's why we come here. That's why we want to be a part of the church. To be counted in that number. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your words. We thank you, Father, for an incredible challenge to give our life every day. There's so many, Father, in this room alone who would give their lives once. It's so difficult to give your life every day. So, Father, I ask that you will help us to remember what charity actually is. To know that that is our job. To watch the march of Christ through the streets of Jerusalem when we think about charity. Think about his broken body and his spilt blood when we get tempted to be prideful or angry or quarrelsome. Father, we ask that you will make this church, this body, this group of people the opposite of the evil that we see every day. And that we may fully realize what our purpose in life is. And we may live it out. That each one of us, in our own little world, in our own little corner, every given moment, can remember to do our job. In Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand and sing.
so many of the things I was thankful, and this was actually going to be a private moment, but um, I don't want to take anything away from everybody who sings and plays up here, but every ship has to have a captain, and I just really appreciate what Wes does every week, all the time, day in, day out. He just makes our lives a lot better, taking on that role of leading this, and um, I just really appreciate everything that they do and certainly everything he does. By the way, you're going to find some teachers in here today also. And if you have the chance, maybe express your appreciation to them as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Thank you for the love that you've given us. We thank you, Father, that you've given each person in here an opportunity to serve, to be a minister, uh, to overcome evil with good. And Father, we hope or we ask that you help us to make that our goal. And everything that we do, every interaction we have, even if... Uh, even if we've got to be the one that takes the, uh, the hard path, that uh, you help us to overcome evil with good in every moment of every day of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.